Okay, so we're in Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 14. Uh, Micah is going to ask an incredibly important question today. He's going to say, who is a God like you, of God? Who is a God like you? Now, our culture, our city, answers that question differently than we would. We live in a time and a place where we kind of love adages like, well, you know, it's all really many paths up one mountain to the same thing. Now, the reality is, is that is different than what the Bible says. The Bible spends so much time trying to say, no, no, no. The God of the Bible is unique and different across the spiritual landscape, across all these other ideas, and really that no one is like our God. And this is no clear, nowhere more clearly seen than in the person of Jesus Christ and in the reality of his gospel, that every other spiritual system gives us a formula for how we get up to God, but in Jesus we see that God has come down to save us, and that's different. And in fact, when we ask the question, who is a God like our God, we come to the reality and the truth. And the truth that Christianity, that the gospel, that being a Christian is not first and foremost about the things that we do, but who God is and what he has done for us most clearly in the person of Jesus. That I was living, running, and rebelling against God, and God in his grace and mercy came and got me. That I didn't love God, but that God loved me. That I didn't know God, but God revealed himself to me in Jesus. That I needed to be saved from myself and from the life that I had built for myself. And that Jesus came down and got me. It's not about putting on your Sunday best. It's not about putting your life together so God will be impressed with who you are. But the reality that God has come to save us from ourselves. Who is a God like that? Nobody. If you're not a Christian today... There is no more important question in your life than asking what kind of a God is the God of the Bible, namely Jesus. And if you are a Christian, there is no more important question than to continue and return to this worshipful, awesome question, who is a God like our God? And Micah, an 8th century B.C. prophet, is going to unpack that for us. And he's going to keep coming back to and point to it and say, look how amazing he is. Look how amazing the God of the Bible is. Look how amazing he is. And of course, as Christians here living on the other side of the cross, we can even say, look how amazing Jesus is, his son, and how much he's revealed himself in his son. Now, he doesn't know who Jesus is yet, but he knows he's coming, and we'll, we'll look at that today. And I'll start my timer so we can go to lunch sometime. So here we are. Micah chapter I'm going to just read the text and then we'll start unpacking it. So Micah uh, chapter uh, 7, pardon me, I think I said 5, I meant 7, 714. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came uh, When you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. They shall be in fear of you. Verse 18. Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in his steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So here we are in verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in the forest in the midst of the uh, garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead. Now here's, here's our problem. There's a solution for this problem, by the way. Um, it takes a long time to kind of live in the world of the 8th century B.C., and he just said a bunch of stuff that if you don't know what he said, uh, does, are there any sheep herders in the house? You don't have to raise your hand if you are. I'm working on, I'll be up as, a, as an act of full disclosure, I'm working on my herd. I'm trying to get some goats. I'm not joking. It will be awesome. I call it phase two of the Pack Family Farm. That is what it is to live in Seattle in 2014, and it is wonderful. Uh, now, having said that, I'm a high topper. I'm an urbanite. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, out of, I'm out of the zone when, when we start talking about shepherds and things. I'm learning and growing. Uh, but one of the things that we, don't, we can't forget here, shepherd your people with your staff. I think oftentimes when we hear that kind of language, we kind of, uh, a lot of times even you may have heard it preached, that's a lot of emphasis on like doing stuff to the sheep with a staff, like keeping the sheep in line or whatever that might be. Uh, a, a, a shepherd has a staff for a couple of purposes. One is to keep the sheep where they need to go. And the other thing is that if you're an 8th century B.C. shepherd in the land of Israel in the Shephelah Mountains, because Micah's a farm boy and he's from the Shephelah Mountains and this is normal stuff for him, you got to deal with wolves, like literal, actual, physical critters that come and eat your stuff and bears and lions and stuff. Stuff comes to get you. And this is a message that we need a protector. The protector is God, our good shepherd. Right? I need to be protected. I need to be protected from myself. I need to be protected from the world. And I need to be protected. And God is a protector. Now, what's interesting here is that this isn't the first time shepherds have been referenced uh, in Micah. Is that me? Are we okay? If you'd flip back with me to Micah chapter 5, verse 4, it says this. Give us a little input on that shepherd. And he, now mind you, remember, this is, this is 750s probably-ish, B.C., before Christ. You know, 8th century before Christ. But listen to what he says about Christ. And he... And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. Now, every, every piece of language that the Bible tends to give us, or not every, but most of the images of shepherds are, are loving, kind, gracious caretakers. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. That's you and me, the shepherd here, in the strength of the Lord. This is the proper name for God. So... And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So it's someone in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they shall dwell secure. From, uh, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. This is looking forward to, and even, even non-Christian like Jewish scholars, and this is looking forward to the guy we're going to call Messiah. Messiah, Mashiach, uh, 
anointed one. Christos, Greek, anointed one. Messiah, Christ, and even John a couple times is going to say Messiah or Christ, who is called the Messiah or Messiah who is called Christ. I can't remember which way he goes with it. But we're looking forward to Jesus, God himself, who's going to come and love us and care for us and be our protector and be our guide in life. Who is a God like our God? The message of Jesus is not how you can do things so Jesus will like you and think you're awesome. The message is we come to Jesus empty-handed in our need and he takes us in and gathers us in and cares for us because we come to him with empty hands. That's good news, by the way. Because when I'm being really honest with myself, my hands are pretty empty. Shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your inheritance. So, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land, let them graze in Bashan Gilead. So, so here's where we are. And you can get all this info. This is right in the Bible. This is right in First and Second Kings. Like, this is not stuff that you can't actually find in the text. But a couple important things are happening here. Who are the flock? Who are the inheritance? This is Israel. This is 8th century Israel. And if you don't know much about them, I'll tell you about them. They're unfaithful. They like to worship pretend gods. They disobey God. They take advantage of the poor. They they take advantage of people when God set a system up. The God of the Bible set a system up. He says things like, so you go through your fields. Again, we're getting agrarian, right? You only go through your fields once so that everybody else who doesn't have stuff can come behind and they can go through the field too and they have food. But what are they doing in Micah's time? They're cleaning it out like locusts themselves. They're taking it all so no one has anything. They're moving property lines. They're taking advantage of foreigners. They're taking advantage of widows. They're taking advantage of children. And God is not pleased when people do things like this. God's not impressed by it, right? Now, what's, what's interesting, so these guys who are worshiping pretend gods, saying these pretend gods are better than these, you who are a real God, and all this stuff, listen to what he calls them. The flock of your inheritance There's other places in Mike where he calls us these same people his people. I mean, I need you to get this. And this is why I say things like this every Sunday. Your life in Christ is not based on what you have done, but who he is. He will save you from yourself. He will save you from your junk. And he takes you in the muck and the mire of your life. And no, he doesn't just say it's all okay, but he condescends and gets us out of the mud and the junk of our lives. And like I said earlier, last night might have been the worst, nastiest, wiling out, sinful, or false religious night of your life. And if you are in Christ, it is finished, it is paid for, you are his, and he, are, he is yours, and not height, nor depth, nor powers, nor principalities can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's faithful to us, even when we're so faithless to him. Who do, who dwell alone, isolated, stragglers, or it can be translated stragglers. They're stragglers. They're not rolling with God's people. They're just kind of out in the fringes. They're out in the, out in the woods, so to speak, in the midst of the gar- uh, a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. So 
we're in the eighth century again, BC. And where we are at is that the Assyrians have taken everything but Jerusalem at this point in time. Bashan and Gilead are gone. They have been annihilated by the Assyrians. They are in Assyrian control. And he's saying that there's a time coming when this guy, Mashiach, the Christ, Jesus, comes, and he's going to put things back the way they're supposed to be. And they're not that way now. Now, now what's amazing is these people who are hauled up in Jerusalem know how faithless they've been. These are the promises that God is making to faithless people. How about that? These are things he's saying to faithless people, not faithful people. These these are things he's saying to people who have made a mess and a wreck of their own lives. Because Jesus is in the business of taking people and peoples, there's a group here, who make a mess of everything and putting it back. He's in the business of wiping every tear from every eye. He's in the the business of taking my mess and my junk and making good things out of it somehow. That's weird. Who's a God like that? Who's a God who just doesn't say, you won't follow me, you won't do what I want, you're garbage to me. Doesn't do that. He knows all of your junk. He knows all of your junk. And yet... He doesn't just call you, oh, that's the guy I hang out with or I sort of know. That's my son or daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And that comes to the cross of Jesus Christ. Takes his life for my life. My death for his death. I deserve to die for what I've done. And he dies for me. He drinks the cup so I don't have to. That's a gospel. And it's not just that he's paid the price, but he gives us a life to live enjoying God, knowing the one who made everything. Praise the Lord. Bashan and Gilead, they're gone, as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I didn't do a study on this, but he's, he, Micah keeps coming back to this idea. He keeps pointing back to Egypt. Guys, remember what I did in Egypt? When you all were slaves, and you're stuck, and you had nothing to offer, and I rescued you. And I rescued you. This forthcoming time, when he puts everything back the way it's supposed to, he's going to be like that. I will show them marvelous things. This word, marvelous things, is always used for God, or almost always used, preponderantly used for God, when he does cosmic, awesome stuff. Or he does these big historic acts, like taking a people who could not save themselves out of Egypt and making them a strong nation. That's what this word's used for, stuff like that. Who's a God like that? Who's a God who finds the weakest? You read Greek mythology, it's often, oh, you're awesome, you're the guy, you got big muscles and stuff, you're totally cool, and that's the guy that I want to get after. God's in the business of finding people that when he moves in our lives, you'll make no mistake, that was a miracle. Andrew Pack, B.C., messed up, jacked up, I could tell Stories to prove my messed up and jacked upness, but I don't need to. It's actually most seen in people who knew me before, specifically Christian people who knew me before. And they say, how is this possible that you are who you are? Not a perfect dude, just a Christian dude, just a blood-bought sinner saint. But still, how are you even a believer? How are you even professing Christ? How, how is this possible? It's not. It's impossible. Good news is God does impossible stuff. 
It's good news for me. It's good news for you. If you don't think God's done impossible stuff in your life to make you a Christian, you need to take some time this afternoon to examine your life and what Jesus has done on your behalf. Seriously. If you just look at it, like, oh, it's logical that I'm here and that I've done this. You should take some time to reflect. Real sober time. Because it's not logical and it doesn't make sense that you're here. But God is so gracious and loving and kind and does impossible things for people who don't deserve it. Welcome to the gospel. Let's keep going. Uh, The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. So what he's really referring to here, you know, the nations are pretty organized at this point in time against God and his people. Uh, And and yet the Bible keeps saying, and I'm going to call people from the nations. I'm going to call them in from far off places. Uh, he's, He's in the business, take this, listen. He's in the business of taking people who are his enemies and making them his friends. That's important. Oh yeah, I'd be a Christian. You just don't know what my life, you don't know what I've done. You're right, but God does and forgives. I mean, can you imagine? It's one thing when someone says, hey, that was messed up that I did that to you. Please forgive me. You're right, that was messed up. But that God, God has the whole thing. Every second of your entire life, he knows every horrible and horrific thing that's ever happened in your life. Every time you've just done the right things for the wrong reasons. Every time you've given yourself so people are like, oh, that guy's so generous and kind. And you spend most of your time patting yourself on the back. I am so generous and kind. I am awesome. It's false religion. He knows all of it. He knows your heart. And he looks at you and because of the cross of Jesus Christ says, forgiven, mine, child of God. The nations shall see, see these are enemies, these are enemy nations at this point, shall see and be ashamed of all their might. Uh, might here is like, this is, the, this is the world power stuff. This is, you've got a big army, you've got a huge corporation, you have lots of money, you have power at your hands. This word might has the, the connotation of worldly strength and power, and ability, uh, hegemonic rulers of big, scary nations, guys with big, giant tanks. In the 8th century, we're talking about guys with chariots. We're not really scared of guys with chariots now, but chariot guys and guys with spears, which we're not as scared of as we used to be. But in the 8th century, it is a big deal. The Assyrians have invented composite bows where they put a couple kinds of materials together. Their arrows fly farther and faster Their swords are sharper, spears are tougher, chariots are faster. They've got the world's might. They've got survival of the fittest down. They've got king of the mountain down. And don't, because we're talking about chariots here, don't think that you and I aren't just as inclined in 2014 to flex worldly might, to flex our ability or possession or possessions or finances or whatever we might have that we can flex to get whatever we might want. You don't have to be a king to do that, by the way. They're going to be ashamed of their might. They've been using this might, and now for a second, they're going to see and answer the question, who is a God like our God? This word might is related to a name you probably know. That's Gabriel. That first part, Gabe, Gav in Hebrew. Gabriel means mighty in the Lord. This word's related to a word for man. 
It's used 66 times in the Hebrew Bible. Why am I telling you that? Because there's at least three ways to say man in Hebrew. One super duper, uber duper common. It's used like 2,200 times. The next, also extremely common, used like 550 times. And both of those have their own nuances and meanings. But this word for man, if you go with me to um, Psalm 40, verse 4. It's an important word. Psalm 40, verse 4. Blessed is the man, that's our, that's our word that's related to this word for might. Well, man and might, those aren't what's going on here. I'll, I'll get there, I promise. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. So man here, um, we use the ESV and they do word for word. So you get one word for one word, which is the, the awesome way to do a Bible because then y'all, y'all have access to this. You all can figure out what that word means and y'all can go home and check me on it if you use just like some internet websites, right? Like good ones, don't use bad ones, there's good ones, right? You can get some Bible software, but you can use like a blue letter Bible, that's a good one. You can go check me on this. And then they use a lexicon that sees it differently. And I have to send you a thing because you sent me a list. I checked you and it's wrong. And I'm not saying it's a pain in my butt. I'm saying good. Check me. Don't, don't just, just come saying it. Y'all you need to know your Bible. You need to have access to You, you have access to this. I, get in there. That's an aside. Anyways, blessed is the man. So this is translated ish. That's the big one. Adam or man, gav. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. So what it's saying here is that the true mighty man, the, 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 the thing he's trying to get after here, is the one who at the peak of his game, at the peak of his life, at the peak of his strength, at the peak of his intellect, at the peak of his power, the true man of God is the man who makes the Lord his trust. When you have all the chariots and all the spears and all the flocks and staves and whatever other thing Micah's got going on, instead of trusting in those things, you trust in the Lord. You say, yeah, okay, I'm, you know, I'm 25. I'm at the peak of my game. I'll never run this fast. I'll never see as far. I'll never do this thing. And it's fleeting and it's empty and I'm not going to trust in those things. I'm going to trust in God. And when I trust in me, things go bad. But when I trust in God, these become tools in his hands all of a sudden. So that the true man, the truest man, is one who comes to God even when they are the strongest and still comes to God with empty hands and says, I'm weak and I really don't have anything to offer. What do I have to give the God of the universe? Does he need me to make him a sandwich? Does he need me to drive my chariots around and pick? He doesn't need me for nothing. It's grace. See that? He doesn't need you for anything, but that doesn't mean you're garbage. That means it's grace. That means you're invited into the family, not because he needs another guy on the basketball team, and I don't know anything about sports, so I don't know how many guys are on a basketball team, which sinks my illustration right there. But there's a number of guys you need to play, and if you're short one of those people, God's not like, hey, can you do the thing he doesn't know what he's talking about with? You know what I mean? Bocce ball. You need another guy for bocce ball. He didn't need you on the team. They're not short a player in heaven. And that's why you got called. You got called because Jesus saves sinners from death to life when they're knee high in their own junk. And the true man of God knows it. 
Blessed is the mighty man who does what? Stands with empty hands. We have this John Wayne idea, right? John Wayne is a mighty man because he punches cows and fights dudes. That's a mighty man. The mighty man is the guy at the top of his game who says, God, I'm only going to trust you, not me. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, uh, to those who go astray after a lie. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might, all their John Wainery. They will be ashamed of their John Wainery. I just invented a word. John Wainery. Maybe it's two words with a hyphen between John and Wayne, and it's just Wainery. Don't, don't put that on Wikipedia, please. They shall lay... That's what happens when you go off outline and just start talking. You start inventing words. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. They're ashamed. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. Now, what's interesting here is that Assyrians, who, by the way, God's people have been worshiping Assyrian gods... Egyptians, when they were in Egypt, they worshipped Egyptian gods. All these people put a priority on what critter? Snakes. It's a cultural thing. That's something we may not pick up on. But you'd know it, and you can get this from the Bible. Because what is Hezekiah, who's the king at this point in time, which you can also get from the Bible. I'm not, you know, it's not out of the ether. Hezekiah did what? So, Moses had this bronze serpent in the desert that God made that when people got bit by snakes, he did a miracle and they'd get better from the snake bites. And it turns out in Hezekiah's day, Hezekiah repents and what does he find people doing with Moses' bronze serpent dilly? Worshipping it. So what does Hezekiah do? He says, well, that's really a national treasure and we should put that in a museum and hang on to it forever because that was Moses's, right? Melts it down, burns it. Yeah, God did mighty things through these things, but it wasn't a snake that did it. It was God. They're worshiping it, so he burns it. So I think there's a, I think he's saying something here. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth, because nothing's really more humble um, than that. Uh, Negative humble, not positive humble. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds, or, or really their borders. They will come trembling with fear from their borders because they actually get it for one moment that the God of the universe has been continuously calling people to make amends, to, for, to be forgiven, to put down their arms, to come to him, and we would say now as Christians, to come to Christ as enemies of God, to be forgiven from our sins and given life. And he keeps saying, come, come. I mean, that's why we sing softly and tenderly. It's an old-timey song, I know, but I love it. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling from you and from me. Come, repent, believe, be saved. Stop running, stop rebelling, be saved. But God is also a God of justice. God is not the God who just sweeps things under the rug. Only in America in 2014, in our opulence, in our comfort, are we comforted by the idea, well, God just loves everybody and is cool with everything everybody does all the time. Friends, the brothers and sisters who are being persecuted furiously in Iraq right now, that's not a lot of comfort for them. Pray for them. The brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Do not forget them in our comfortable chairs and our roof. We have a roof where we meet, goodness gracious. Don't forget them. This is good news to them that God is just. This is good news to those who have been treated this way, that God will settle the score. Now, the amazing thing about God is he deals with this in two wild ways. Either Jesus will pay the price for your sin or you will have to. You've hurt God and you've hurt people. And if you're a Christian, Jesus comes. God sees what you've done. Jesus comes in your mess, lives the life you were supposed to live, dies the death you ultimately deserve, and gives you the life that he was entitled to. This is the gospel. He looks at you in your state and is punished in your place because God is good and gracious. Uh, go with me to Isaiah 45, 22 and 25. This is the quote that Paul will use. I don't know if you know this. When, when Paul in Philippians 2, when he says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, this is where he gets it. This is what he says in 22. Turn to me. Now, he's addressing people who have gone massively wayward, who've, who've hurt God and hurt people. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Everyone is invited into the forgiveness of God through Jesus. Come to me, all the ends of the earth. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. There is no salvation anywhere other than the true, real God of the Bible. By myself I have sworn. He did it himself. He looked at our mess and in Christ came to get us. He knows all your stuff and yet came to get you. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and swear allegiance. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only, the, only in the Lord is it said of me, all righteousness and strength to him, to him shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. He's just and the justifier because he came and died for us. That he's both good for not sweeping all my own junk or your junk under the rug, but he's good in paying the price for it so that he doesn't just forgive you in a way and says, oh, we're cool, like, don't worry about it. He does worry about it. He does worry about injustice. He does worry about unkindness. He does worry about selfishness. And yet he came and, and last time I said this, someone put this somewhere. The bus is coming. I'm standing in front of it in my own sin. He pushes me out of the way, and Jesus gets hit by the bus, and somehow he becomes the cosmic bad guy in the whole deal. He's saying, come. My job as a pastor is not to stand next to this cross and tell you guys to behave and be right, but to stand as a fellow blood-bought sinner and say there's room for you in the love of Christ Jesus. Come and be saved. And mind you, this is the Old Testament here. This is the Old Testament. This is the gospel. If you think the Old Testament doesn't have the gospel, try again. Uh, let's keep going. Here we get to it. Who is God like you? Who is God like you? Pardoning iniquity. So forgiving our sin against him. And passing over 
transgression. To the remnant of his inheritance. He's still talking about these people, these people who've been nasty to him as his people. What love and grace. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. We looked at this in 6, I think it's in verse 8, where it says in your ESV, it's going to say he loves, uh, loving, loves kindness. And it's hard because the two words there, one is love and the other one is loving kindness. He tells us to love loving kindness. It's kind of a mouthful, and it's not that eloquent in English, but you need to see the way that God talks and wants you to respond to the reality of who he is by loving God and loving other people. Loves loving kindness. If you go with me to Exodus 34 and 6. Uh-oh. Exodus 34 and 6 says this. The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Same word. This, friends, is the most quoted Bible by the Bible in the Old Testament. Exodus 34 and 6 is the thing that comes up again and again and again, and Micah's leaning into it. It's such a big deal in the Bible that Jonah says this. Uh, If you've ever been in Sunday school, which I wasn't, Everybody loves Jonah because you got a fish in it, and you can talk about a fish, and I get swallowed by a fish, and a fish getting spit out, blah, blah, blah. Right? That's Jonah. Yeah, the fish. There's the fish story in there. We like the fish thing. Jonah is a story about God saying, Jonah, I'm going to go send you to these people to go and proclaim to them judgment. And what does Jonah do? He goes the opposite way. Why? Well, because they're Assyrians, they're Ninevites. They're a different ethnic group than him, and he's a racist. He does not want them to be saved. How do I know that? Because in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, it says this. So, so he comes, he pronounces, he gets eaten by a fish, spit out, but that's not really the point of this part of the story. There's also a mushroom, a plant. All awesome. Read it at home. The point is that he was supposed to go and pronounce judgment and he knew that if he told them God is going to destroy you for all the nasty, horrible, wicked things you've done, that they might do what? Repent. And what does he know about God? That when people repent, Jeremiah 18, even at prophetic judgment, the reason they get the judgment is to know how bad of shape they are in so they can turn from their sin and turn to God and be saved. And so what happens? He comes and in a really like bummer way, God's going to destroy everything. (laughs) And the king of Nineveh says, Oh no, make the cows fast. I'm not even joking. He freaks out. Everyone uh, does, you know, what's, you know, in Semitic culture, these kind of signs of of mourning and such. They tear their clothes. They put ashes on their heads. And they don't even let the cows eat and drink. We're fasting. We're churning. We heard it. And what does Jonah say about it? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. I'm in 4 and 1. Actually, uh, 3 and 10. When God saw they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah wanted some street justice. We as people actually like street justice. 
Someone punched you in the nose, you punched them in the nose. Someone did something horrible, something horrible happens to them. We actually like that, except for when it's for us, right? You're driving down the highway, you're speeding, you're going too fast. It's 75, Junior Brown's on the radio, and your foot is down on the pedal. And ironically, a highway patrolman sees you, and you just pray to God, God, I promise I'll never speed again, Lord, praying over your car, you're doing whatever you're doing, and you get by and you go, oh, thank you, Jesus. And then five minutes later, somebody else is listening to Junior Bound, their pedal is to the metal. You say, where's the cop when you need one? We want justice. We want street justice for everybody else. For us, we want grace and mercy. God is gracious because he extends grace and mercy to the ends of the earth that all would be saved if they turn and repent in him. If they repent, if they turn to him. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. They're nasty people. They've done horrible things to us. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. That's where he ran in the other direction because he didn't want to tell him the stuff. And what does he say? For I knew. He knew the care. Who is a God like our God? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew the character of God and was afraid that the Assyrians, who he hated, would get and receive that love and mercy. Not right, by the way. Just because somebody does something in the Bible doesn't mean you should do it. You need to recognize Job's friends are idiots. Don't listen to them and don't be like them, right? Someone's quoting in the middle of Job. Well, it says in Job, blah, 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 blah. Well, who's talking in Job, by the way? That one's a little bit of an aside, but it happens. Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnants of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He loves showing grace and mercy to his enemies. If only we would be like that. He will again, now listen to this. Listen to this. So they're in Jerusalem. Things are going really poorly. Jerusalem's the last city standing. They know that they have made the bed that they've made for themselves by being friends with the Assyrians. And the Assyrians went to conquer them. They pushed on the Assyrians, worshiping pretend gods, all this different stuff. And despite the fact that they've made a mess of their own country and their own people, he will again have compassion on us he will tread, this word could be translated or better translated, subdue. He will subdue our iniquities. You and I live lives. We could be selfish. We could be self-centered. We could be self-serving. We could be religious. We can wild out. We could do all these things that are in rebellion against God. And even there's sometimes, I just want to stop doing blah, 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 blah. Whatever that thing is that you're dealing with. Or, or I just want to be saved from myself. My life is a, is, a, is a mess, and it's, and it's junk, and, and, I, and it's empty, and it's, and it's vacuous, and I can't save myself. He will subdue. The thing you are powerless to fight against, Jesus Christ has conquered on his cross and proved it by his resurrection, given us life. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And check this out. You will cast our sins, all my running, all my rebelling, all my 
making my meaning and purpose uh, out of something other than Jesus, all my selfishness, you will cast those into the depths of the sea. Now, again, you ever been on a cruise ship? I haven't. I hear they're scary. I don't know. A city on the water scares me. But we live in a time and a place where people do do that, right? And it's, it's what people do. Uh, people have speedboats and fishing boats and yachts and other nautical-type things they go out in the water in. Well, in 8th century B.C., you stay right, you don't leave the coast. Because if you get away from the coast in your travels, your ship gets lost at sea, and that is hopeless. There's no deep-sea diving in the 8th century B.C. You don't know what is at the bottom of the ocean, You don't know what's past where you can see with your own two eyes. So think about if you're a hearer of that, if you're not thinking about like the Great Barrier Reef and videos you've seen of Hawaii or whatever, and you're an 8th century hearer, and he says this to you. He's going to take your sins, all of them, and you're going to be hucked somewhere that you have like no framework to how to even like get there. Are you tracking with me? It's the abyss. It's... It's gone. It's, it's blotted out. Uh, you might have, he might have said, it's going to be thrown out of the universe, out past the end of the universe, whatever. In he, uh, Romans chapter 8, our sin is as far as the east is from the west. How far is east from the west? Well, if quantum physics is right, and if it's infinitely that way and infinitely that way, our God's built the universe, if east is infinitely that way and west is infinitely that way, how far am I from my own sins? They're all cast into the depths of the sea. You're loved, forgiven people if you've turned to Christ. Your transgressions have been blotted out. Now live. Please, live. Who's a God like our God? You'll show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. We're talking Genesis stuff here. Stuff that's fulfilled in the New Testament. Stuff that's being fulfilled now. He's not a God who forgets his promises. He's not slow as we count slowness. You ever feel like God's slow? I do. He's not slow. He's not slow. We feel like he's slow. You'll show faithfulness to Jacob. Steadfast love to Abraham, as you've sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Forever. Forever. Now, interestingly enough, there's two words here. Days of old in verse 20. And you're like, I heard that earlier uh, in verse 14. Now, these are both completely appropriate translations from the Hebrew. However, uh, this one really means like forever, ever, eternity. This is big stuff. The author's trying to get across that that his yes is yes forever. He's not going to change your mind on you if you're a Christian. This might have been the hardest week. You didn't read your Bible and you feel bad about it. Read your Bible. God will meet with you. You may have sinned in big, horrible, and horrific ways. You You may just know your own heart. You may know that, yeah, I wasn't wiling out doing keg stands, but I was, you know, giving people coats and patting myself on the back accepting worship for it. I wasn't in your pocket this week. Right? Could have been the worst week of your life. If you're a Christian, you're a Christian. You're in. You're saved. You're forgiven. Because who's a God like our God? No one. Right? 
Who's a God like our God? No one. No one. And it's about him and who he is and what he has done, not who you are and what you've done. And really, who you are is actually based on who he is and what he has done, which is good news. When we don't believe this, that there is one way, Jesus, his grace is huge. There's one God like Jesus. There's one way that's through him. It's confessing with our lips and believing in our hearts that he's who he said he is, the son of God, God himself, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully human, uh, that, that, that he is who he is. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. Uh, he loves his grace and mercy. And it brings him glory. When we don't believe this, we either look for something else to be our comfort or to be our salvation. If I could just get a better job, if I could just get more of something else, if I could just get more money, if I could just move out of Seattle, if I could, if I could just do this, then everything will be okay. There's only salvation in Jesus, friends. And you can move, and you can have more of something else. I don't know what it is. But it's in Christ alone. It's in Jesus alone that we're made whole. And this means for us as a people together, as a group of blood-bought sinner saints, man, how much shall we forgive each other if this is how much he's forgiven us? How much shall we have grace for each other if this is how much grace he's had for us? How welcoming shall we be of people who just say, Here's all my stuff today, and here's all of it, and all my junk. This is who I am. How welcoming will we be of those people because we know that God has loved us first, even when we were not lovely or lovable or loved him. And if you don't know him, there is no other God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's one life in Christ. There's one wholeness in Christ. There's one peace in Christ. There's one way to God in Christ. And there's nothing you can do to earn it. You receive it. You receive Jesus and walk in the grace and the mercy. You turn from yourself and from your sin, and you turn to him. And you know him, and you love him, and you live. You glorify him by enjoying him. Let's pray.